6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, November 22, 2021. This is the KVMR Evening News. Tonight on the California Report, Diablo Canyon, the state's last remaining commercial nuclear power plant, is officially set to close after decades of negotiations. However, the facility currently provides 8% of California's electricity without producing any greenhouse gas. So how will the state replace this energy without turning to dirtier power? And in national native news, a federal review committee will determine whether 6,000-year-old artifacts at the University of Alabama are tied to seven tribes attempting to recover them. Then we turn to regional headlines and weather before Al Stoller speaks to Nisanon tribal spokesperson, Shelley Covert. This is the California Report, and I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Coast Guard officials are investigating an oil sheen that was discovered over the weekend near last month's pipeline leak off the coast of Orange County. Crews were preparing to do a routine inspection of the pipeline on Saturday when they noticed oil droplets near the damaged section. That's when the oil sheen, measuring 70 feet by 30 feet, was observed. Coast Guard officials say the sheen has dissipated, but they'll continue to monitor the area. They say the oil spotted was likely residual crude from last month's spill. The pipeline has been shut down and no oil has flowed through it since the October 2nd spill. Federal investigators are looking into what caused the spill, although they believe it was initially damaged by a ship's anchor. 1,000 acres of sacred land could be restored to the Karuk tribe living along the Klamath River in Humboldt and Siskiyou counties. That's if legislation introduced in Congress is passed. KQED science reporter Danielle Venton has more. About three years ago, the Karuk tribe invited Representative Jared Huffman up to see a stretch of land along the Klamath River. The area is named Kudamine. Here's Tribal Chairman Buster Atterbury. Kudamine area is where we hold our ceremonies. It's where the Kuduk tribe considers the center of their world. Currently, the area is controlled by the U.S. Forest Service, as is 95% of Karuk Aboriginal territory. To use it for annual ceremonies, the tribe has to apply for and receive permission. Joshua Saxon, executive director for the tribe, says they wanted Huffman to consider legislation placing control of the land into Karuk hands. Under this bill, the tribe would have guaranteed access for current and future generations. And we'll be able to bring back traditional ecological knowledge and cultural practices and ceremonial practices that have really been hindered over the last couple hundred years. Karuk self-governance director Daryl Aubrey said he could not overstate the importance of this land. Because this is our place of prayer. I mean, this is like our church. And so to have this back underneath our us being able to manage it and to be able to practice freely the way we always have is huge. The bill awaits consideration by the U.S. House of Representatives. For the California Report, I'm Danielle Venton. Let's turn to energy now and the resolution of a decades-long environmental dispute that's creating new problems. California is on track to close Diablo Canyon, the state's last remaining commercial nuclear power plant. The facility, which sits on the central coast in San Luis Obispo County, is owned by Pacific Gas and Electric and has been operational since 1985. But Diablo Canyon was already controversial years before it opened, partly because of a 1979 nuclear nuclear accident on the other side of the country. Here's Walter Cronkite reporting that. It was the first step in a nuclear nightmare. 
Government officials said that a breakdown in an atomic power plant in Pennsylvania today is probably the worst nuclear reactor accident to date. The partial meltdown at the Three Mile Island nuclear plant underscored the concerns of Diablo Canyon's critics. They worried about radioactivity that could be released if an earthquake damaged the facility and all the nuclear waste generated by the plant. In 1981, nearly 2,000 people were arrested when they staged a blockade of Diablo Canyon. Those arrested included singer Jackson Brown, who was interviewed by MTV News when he was released from jail. Yeah, I do think we're going to make a difference. I think we're going to turn it on. See, already the nuclear power industry is really, it's all over for them. There are no new plants being ordered. You know, I hope that it won't take a, an earthquake and a, and a disaster of Diablo Canyon to have it shut down. No, it didn't take a disaster to prompt the decision to shut down the plant. Just years of activism, the changing economics of the nuclear industry, and a growing political consensus that atomic energy's time had passed. Diablo Canyon is now scheduled to completely close by 2025. But here's the thing. The plant is still really important. It supplies about 8% of California's electricity, and all that power it generates doesn't produce greenhouse gases. That in a state that's championed the fight against climate change. So, when Diablo Canyon does close, can California replace the energy it produces without turning to dirtier sources of power? Yeah, and that's that's the question that I've that I've been that I've been thinking a lot about and advocating about. That's Mark Specht, an energy analyst at the Union of Concerned Scientists, who studies Diablo Canyon. When you shut down Diablo Canyon, something is going to replace it. We still have electricity demand. People still will use the same amount of electricity the day after Diablo Canyon goes offline. So something will replace it. And the problem is that if we didn't do anything, it's natural gas power plants that would replace it. But those natural gas power plants would spew a lot of pollution into the atmosphere, the equivalent of adding 300,000 cars to California's roads. That according to research by the Union of Concerned Scientists. Speck says even if precautions are taken, there will be an inevitable uptick in pollution when Diablo Canyon closes. What's going to happen pretty much no matter what is that when Diablo Canyon shuts down, there's going to be a little spike in greenhouse gas emissions because... The day the plant shuts down, the next day, it's going to be gas plants that fill the gap. That's just how the grid works. But Speck says to prevent that short-term problem from becoming a permanent one, more, much more has to be done now to get green power sources online to replace the carbon-free energy currently generated by Diablo Canyon. Oh, absolutely. Yes. (laughs) There is no time to waste. It is 2021 and... Diablo Canyon's first unit shuts down in 2024, and the second unit shuts down in 2025. We're talking about three, four years, and then the power plant goes offline. And building new, clean resources takes years. Folks have to be working on this right now to make sure that we're replacing the power plant with clean energy. Although SPECT supports the closure of Diablo Canyon for safety reasons, other energy experts and some environmentalists have another solution. They argue atomic power should be accepted as a way to fight climate change, and plans to close Diablo Canyon and other nuclear plants should be shelved. Support for the California Report comes from Stanford Medicine. Protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. Paint Care. 
Now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together. On the web at schmidtfutures.com. And that is the California Report from Monday, November 22nd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening. Up ahead in National Native News, a look at recent inductees into the Native American Hall of Fame. But first, criticism over the Biden administration's Tribal Nations Summit, as well as attempts by several tribes to recover 6,000-year-old artifacts and remains from the University of Alabama. This is National Native News. I'm Art Hughes in for Antonia Gonzalez. A federal review committee is scheduled this week to consider whether remains and artifacts at the University of Alabama are tied to seven tribes who are trying to get the remains back. AL.com reports the committee can rule on whether the tribes are connected to the remains, but can't force the university to turn them over. The news outlet reports the Muscogee Creek Nation and the other tribes have tried to recover the remains from the Moundville Archaeological Park for years without success. Tribal officials filed a claim under the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, but say they continued to be hampered by bureaucratic red tape. The National Congress of American Indians issued a resolution calling for the university to turn the items over to the tribes. Archaeologists date the remains to 6,000 years ago. The university's spokesperson released a statement saying the university has worked with several tribes to return the ancestral remains and that they desire to continue collaborating with tribes on their requests. Michelle Latimer is dropping her defamation lawsuit against the CBC and four of its journalists. APTN News reports a court document doesn't explain why she is discontinuing the civil suit. Latimer is a filmmaker and former director of the Trickster TV series. She said she was of Algonquin, Métis, and French heritage, but the CBC reported that tribal officials questioned her indigenous identity. She resigned from the show, and her film, Inconvenient Indian, lost its distribution. While most tribal officials praised the recently concluded Tribal Nations Summit with the Biden administration, at least one chairman is strongly critical of the event. In a written statement, Cheyenne River Sioux Chairman Harold Frazier says he was prevented from expressing what he says is really happening in Indian country. Frazier's concerns were mostly centered around the Indian Health Service, complaining that COVID infections are creating serious problems. Fraser says Cheyenne River citizens are having to wait as long as 36 hours to receive life-saving treatment. For good or bad, Fraser says his tribe must rely on IHS, but the federal government's failure to honor its treaty responsibility is costing lives. Minnesota's governor appointed the first Native American to that state's Court of Appeals. Sarah Wheelock, a citizen of the Meskwaki Nation, was serving as the legal counsel for the Shakopee Metawakanton Sioux community. The St. Paul Pioneer Press reports Wheelock also previously served as an appellate judge on the White Earth Band of Ojibwe Court of Appeals and was an adjunct professor with Mitchell Hamlin College of Law. In a written statement about his appointment, Governor Tim Wall said Wheelock has repeatedly shown that she is a dedicated public servant committed to advancing the common good. This week, we are featuring the voices of several of the recent inductees into the Native American Hall of Fame. Among those honored was Ben Nighthorse Campbell, the former Republican U.S. Senator from Colorado. In an interview after the event, Campbell said whenever he speaks publicly to Native audiences, he makes sure to encourage them to run for office. And we're gaining. When I was in Washington, the last Native person in Congress before me was a uh, Rosebud Sioux named Ben Rifle. Ben served in 1976. 
then he left, retired. I was the next one there. And all the time I was in Washington, House and Senate, I was the only one there. So I got elected from Colorado, but the word goes out through what we call the Moxton Grapevine, and I sort of inherited a national constituency of Indian people from all over the country who had problems they needed help with. So our, uh, our staff really did double duty trying to keep up with that. That was Ben Nighthorse Campbell. The interview was reported by Andy Murphy. Campbell served 22 years in public office. He was first elected to office as a Colorado state legislator. He went on to represent Colorado's third congressional district. He then served as a U.S. senator from 1993 until 2005. He was the first Native American to ever lead the Indian Affairs Committee. With National Native News, I'm Art Hughes. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. There are now booster recommendations for all three available COVID-19 vaccines in the United States, and you may choose which booster shot you receive. More info at aaip.org or cdc.gov coronavirus who support this show. Support by BNSF Railway, proudly supporting the nation's economy by moving the goods that feed, supply, and power communities across the country. More at bnsf.com slash tribal relations. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. We'll start today's regional news with a quick public health update. Nevada County Public Health has confirmed 83 new COVID-19 cases today. Sheriff's deputies found the charred remnants of a vehicle in a grassy area off Amber Street lot in Grass Valley around 10.20 a.m. Sunday. Following a tip from an unidentified source, the responding officers discovered what appears to be human remains within the vehicle wreckage. The findings will be examined with assistance from the California Department of Justice, California Highway Patrol, CAL FIRE, and Chico State Anthropologists. Public Information Officer for the Nevada County Sheriff's Office, Andrew Trigg, said, quote, At this time, the identity of the victim and the cause of the fire are not known. The case is being investigated as a suspicious death, end quote. This reported by the Union of Grass Valley. The Nevada County Sheriff's Coroner's Office has released the names of the victims involved in Saturday's early morning accident on I-80 at Eagle Lakes Road. Sergeant Steve Cassetta said California Highway Patrol received reports at 4.43 a.m. about a wrong-way driver on eastbound I-80 at the Yuba Gap area. A Jeep driving against oncoming traffic crashed head-on into a Honda Civic. The Jeep's driver suffered major injuries and was taken to Renown Regional Medical Center in Reno. CHP investigators suspect the driver was under the influence of alcohol at the time of the crash. Antonio Montano and Brittany Montano, both 29 from North Highlands, died in the crash, along with a 9-year-old girl and 5-year-old boy, said Andrew Trigg, a spokesperson for the Nevada County Sheriff's Office. A toddler was also in the Honda Civic with his family. That child survived the crash and was taken to renown for medical treatment as well, according to the California Highway Patrol. The Sacramento County family was on their way to a Thanksgiving vacation at the Grand Canyon. This reported by the Sacramento Bee. An article in the San Francisco Chronicle delves into a new federal order to remove the word squaw from the names of public lands across the U.S. 
On Friday, Interior Secretary Deb Holland, the first Native American to hold the post, issued a pair of secretarial orders aimed at excising offensive place names from the nation's federal sites. This could have significant ramifications in California, where an estimated 100-plus places carry the derogatory name. Quote, Racist terms have no place in our vernacular or on our federal lands. Our nation's lands and waters should be places to celebrate the outdoors and our shared cultural heritage, not to perpetuate the legacies of oppression, Secretary Holland said. Quote, Today's actions will accelerate an important process to reconcile derogatory place names and mark a significant step in honoring the ancestors who have stewarded our lands since time immemorial. End quote. And we'll close today's news roundup on a lighter note. UC Davis researchers have developed ice cubes that don't melt or grow mold. These plastic-free jelly ice cubes are compostable and antimicrobial and prevent cross-contamination. The cooling cubes contain more than 90% water and other components to retain and stabilize the structure. They're soft to the touch, like a gelatin dessert, and change color depending on temperature. These reusable cubes can be designed or cut into any shape and size needed, said Jihan Zhu, a PhD graduate student who has been working on the project for the past two years. Quote, you can use it for 13 hours for cooling, collect it, rinse it with water, and put it in the freezer to freeze again for next use, said Gang Sun, a professor in the Department of Biological and Agricultural Engineering. The researchers hope to eventually use recycled agriculture waste or byproduct as the coolant material. And now for regional weather. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 40. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 57. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, patchy freezing fog after 10 p.m., increasing clouds with a low around 29. Tomorrow, partly sunny with a high near 47. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, patchy fog throughout the night, increasing clouds with a low around 42. Tomorrow, patchy fog continues between 7 a.m. and 11 a.m., otherwise mostly sunny with a high near 61. Nissan on Heritage Day happens virtually this Friday, as well as live in-person visits to the Nissan on Gallery in Nevada City. KVMR's very own Al Stoller spoke with tribal spokesperson Shelley Covert for more. There are some very moving, very disturbing pieces on the wall. I don't want to scare anybody from coming in. I hope a lot of people come in and see it. It's a history lesson. There's a lot of history that I and I presume everybody else have been totally unaware of. There are some hard pieces on the wall. I know about this history. It's not a surprise to me, but what is a surprise is how cruel and ugly those times were. You know, we look around at our social justice movements and racial equality today, and it feels like we've got so far to go, but we're doing so much better compared to them. And it really gave me a a basis to see that we have made changes and we have come far. We do have a long way to go, but sometimes you got to look back to see where you're coming from. I don't want to overwhelm people. But what I want people to do is just to take in as much as you can and really try on those shoes. Can you imagine living after these types of destructions, nobody believing that it happened, 
that you have to argue about these things. The Indian boarding schools are a perfect example. It just wasn't talked about. It is not a blame exhibit. This is not blaming anybody, but this is an erased history. You really have to dig to find some of these things. And it is really hard. It made me really sad. I knew about the fur rush, the fur trade. It started way earlier than I thought, and they just completely wiped out all fur-bearing animals up and down the entire coast. I didn't understand the staggering numbers that were taken. I know that we have to fight for our rights continuously, but no one is being hunted up and down the streets of Nevada City right now, and that is the reality that our tribe comes from. Money for body parts, horrible things like that. I'm sure a lot of folks will want to come and see the exhibit live for themselves. When is the gallery open? Ubaseyu Gallery is open Thursday through Sunday, 1 p.m. to 6 p.m., and then on Mondays, 1 to 5 p.m. Some of my executive staff is doing tours, so you can get in on a tour to have a little bit of a guided tour. Those are at no cost. Somewhere in December, I'm going to start doing some VIP tours where I think I will give people a little glass of wine to kind of pad the sadness of this exhibit. Um, I'm going to give some VIP tours. People can donate to have this VIP experience, and then, you know, that money will go to church. During the gold rush, was there a way for Nisenon people to make a living to at least be able to continue or do they just have to hide? Most of the people had to hide. Early, early on in the gold rush, the Indians knew where the gold was, so they knew where some of the best spots were to mine. But that was stopped much at the same time the Chinese Exclusion Act happened. Tell us again, if people want to get involved, if people want to join in on the, uh, on the virtual event mm -hmm. this Friday, Go to nisanon.org and you will be able to click into our events page and you'll find all the information to get your tickets. It is a fundraiser. We have set up several ticket prices. We'll have the virtual tour. We'll talk a lot about the erased exhibit and these hard moments of our local history that I think it's just time to talk about it. And nobody needs to be defensive or worry that anybody's pointing a finger. We just need to talk about it. If we don't know that this horrible history happened here, how can we ever correct it again if it starts to happen? We won't be able to recognize it. Tell us once more, how do people sign up for virtual Nisinan Heritage Day coming up this Friday? Go to nisinan.org, and that is N-I-S-E-N-A-N.org. Go to our events tab, and you'll find all of the information there. It is a fundraiser. If you can't make it and you want to donate, feel free to do that. Shelly, it's been very good speaking with you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Al. I was speaking with Shelly Covert, Tribal Spokesperson for the Nisinan. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller. That's our newscast for this Monday, November 22nd. If you ever miss a part of an interview or want to listen to something a second time that caught your interest, you can always listen to the full extended versions of our stories and interviews on our website at kvmr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. KVMR gets support from Milkman Toner Company, providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners. Carrying environmentally safe, remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support. 
serving Northern California counties, also San Francisco to Lake Tahoe, milkmancompany.com, and SBL Entertainment, presenting Hot Club of San Francisco, Friday, December 3rd, and I See Hawks in LA on Friday, December 10th, both 7 p.m. at the Sophia on B Street, Sacramento, sblentertainment.com. Stick around at 6.30, it's the Women's International News Gathering Service, WINGS. This Thursday marks the beginning of the internationally recognized 16 Days Against Gender Violence. On this episode of WINGS, a slew of experts in the field of gender-based violence. They'll discuss how methods to combat violence against women have developed over the years. This includes a look at altering how media covered the 1989 Montreal Massacre, an anti-feminist mass shooting at the Université de Montréal, in which 14 women were murdered. Then at 7, we have Democracy Now! with host Amy Goodman. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. Thanks for listening. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off.